Hi, this is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm the editor of the journal Radiology. This is part two of our June 2019 podcast. The goal of these podcasts is to present a brief summary of key research in our field to keep you up to date. Today, we will review four new research papers. One point of information before we go over the new research for June. The NIH, together with the RSNA and the ACR, released what they referred to as a roadmap for research in artificial intelligence. The overview of AI is also in our June issue. The short title is A Roadmap for Foundational Research on Artificial Intelligence and Medical Imaging. The first author is Dr. Kurt Langlotz, a radiologist at Stanford University. AI is expected to affect all of us doing clinical work, so let's briefly see what the experts believe are the priorities for the development of medical AI. Priority number one, new image reconstruction methods using AI. You may remember we did a podcast about this topic a few months ago. For example, rather than use all of the complex MRI equations called the block equations, the AI can figure out the equations on its own. For example, the input is the complicated case-based data, the Fourier transform of the image. The researchers also give the AI the output, the gold standard MRI reconstructions by the vendor, such as GE, Philips, or Siemens. The AI proceeds to figure out the best equations for itself, how to go from case-based data to the final MRI image. This has already happened, but the payoff in the future could be more important. When MRI researchers start to do very highly accelerated MRI, called compressed sensing, for example, or complex methods like MRI fingerprinting, the computer equations are extremely complicated and can be inaccurate. The goal is to have the AI figure out on its own the right equations. The AI reconstructions can be better and faster than the theoretical mathematical formulas. I mentioned MRI, but this is already happening for CT and PET imaging. Number two, the second priority is automated image labeling and annotation. Last week, I was contacted by a major company. They wanted me and other radiologists to interpret several hundred CT scans and label the sites of the pulmonary emboli. For some time now, AI companies have hired radiologists in the United States or Europe, India, or wherever to label the liver, pancreas, and everything else in the abdomen or the chest. After about 10 or 20,000 example cases, the AI can label the organs by itself. Right now, there are too few large labeled data sets to learn from. If the AI could learn to label the images by itself, we could skip the radiologist's labels. For example, the AI could read the radiology reports and could correlate the findings in the report with the original CT or MRI scan. Number three. The next priority is to get an AI algorithm that is pre-trained to understand radiology images. We can train a 12-year-old to orient a chest x-ray with a head facing up, but most AIs have no idea. Instead, medical researchers use an AI that Google trained to recognize a pencil or a cat or a dog, but not a liver. If we had a pre-trained AI that was already aware of the basic appearance of a CT scan, that would speed development of this technology. Number four. Priority four is called explainable AI technology. At present, when a computer algorithm is trained to recognize the pancreas, we do not know why it understands the organ is a pancreas and not the liver. 
If we could understand the reasons that AI makes a mistake, we could train the AI with extra cases designed to quickly correct the errors. Number five, the last priority is to find rapid ways to de-identify CT and MRI scans. Of course, we can delete the DICOM header that contains patient names and medical record numbers. That's not the holdup. The problem, for a head CT, the full facial features on the patient scan can be easily reconstructed in 3D. Even the external body habitus of a patient from head to toe can be enough to uniquely identify a specific patient. In conclusion, almost everyone now feels that AI is coming. A few months ago, I mentioned I did not have any AI in the clinic. A few months later now, and I have two AI packages I use on a daily basis. One AI reads chest nodules. Another AI removes noise from low-dose coronary CT angiograms. Thousands and thousands of researchers worldwide see medical image analysis as the next target for AI. The goal is to make us more efficient with more powerful imaging tools. Next, on to our research articles for June Part 2. Our first article is about autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. The title is CT of Kidney Volume in Polycystic Kidney Disease, Accuracy, Reproducibility, and Radiation Dose. The study is from the University of British Columbia. The senior author is Adira Levin. The article is straightforward, but often the most impactful imaging research addresses questions that give us a discrete answer. Think, for example, about BIRADS and the importance of that classification system on breast cancer. It's not that complicated, but BIRADS has worked so well that we now have LIRADS, PIRADS, TIRADS, and so on. The first message. There is now a medical treatment for autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, which I will refer to as PCKD. The treatment is a drug called tovaptin. Tovaptin is a vasopressin antagonist. The drug causes the kidneys to excrete excess water while retaining sodium. Tolvaptin is a breakthrough for PCKD patients. It does not cure the disease, but slows it down. Otherwise, these patients with polycystic kidneys are certain to progress from renal failure and then to kidney dialysis with so many complications. There are two trials showing that tolvaptin slows the progression of renal failure. The progression to end-stage renal failure is estimated to be six years without the drug, but nine years with tolvaptin. Giving these patients three years or more of normal life without dialysis changes everything. Tolvaptin has side effects, the potential for liver damage. It is also very expensive. Unfortunately, this is not surprising for a life-saving drug in the United States. The cost of tolvaptin is about $13,000 per month. We have a very strange healthcare system, however. For patients with the right insurance coverage, the cost is 1,300 times less, $10 per month. This podcast has listeners in other countries, and I'm quite sure that the bizarre U.S. medical prices make little sense. Don't worry, our U.S. prices make little sense to U.S. patients and physicians as well. Because tilvaptin can cost $13,000 per month and has liver toxicity, the use of tilvaptin is restricted to so-called high-risk patients for renal failure. How do we identify high-risk patients? The answer is MRI to measure kidney size. Let me explain. In the United States, most medical research is sponsored by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. 
the NIH is actually 23 separate institutes. For example, there's the National Cancer Institute, the Heart Institute, and so on. The institute responsible for doing research on kidney disease is called NIDDK. The NIH groups together the letters DDK, that stands for Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Disease. Compared to the Cancer Institute, NIDDK is not as big with a budget of about $2 billion. That is quite small compared to the $6 billion budget for the Cancer Institute. A big success of NIDDK in the past years was new knowledge about polycystic kidney disease. In particular, NIDDK sponsored a study called CRISP, C-R-I-S-P. A goal of the CRISP study was to determine what factors predict the later development of renal failure for patients with polycystic kidney disease. NIDDK wanted a bulletproof, well-validated marker that indicates later development of renal failure. Why is this so important? By the time renal failure has occurred, treatment is too late. The patient needs dialysis or kidney transplant. But 10 years before, if some biomarker is identified that is a very high correlation with later kidney failure, that gives us the ability to sort of treat the biomarker, not the kidney failure. You treat the healthy patient 10 years before kidney failure happens. Now, what's the biomarker from the CRISP research study? Hundreds of clinical, chemical, demographic biomarkers were evaluated, and imaging. MRI was used to look at kidney size. Measuring kidney features on MRI in patients with PCKD is not a trivial exercise. At the beginning, the CRISP researchers had no idea which MRI feature was useful, a T1 feature or on the T2 images, maybe diffusion MRI, the biggest cyst or the number of cysts or some combination, the amount of remaining normal tissue perhaps, or was it a cyst in the cortex or a cyst in the medullary portion of the kidney? And what about change in size? How do you spot the same kidney cyst a year later? There are endless combinations. The radiologist who was responsible for overseeing all of the MRI studies in CRISP was Dr. Tai Bay at the University of Pittsburgh. A huge responsibility, and like many research projects, extraordinarily tedious and labor-intensive, Exact numbers were needed, but no one knew which numbers were needed. When the CRISP study started, measuring all of the kidney parameters on MRI was basically done manually. Dr. Bay developed some software to help, but still very labor-intensive, no room for error when trying to match to find the same kidney cyst over years of follow-up MRI scans at multiple MRI centers for hundreds of patients. Searching for a needle in a haystack is difficult. It is even harder when you do not know what the needle looks like. Therefore, everything you could imagine needs to get measured and tracked. To top it off, you don't even know if all of your measurements will make any difference. After all, there are hundreds of other clinical parameters that might be better than MRI. And guess what? It worked. Here's your quiz. What do you think would be the most important MRI parameter that predicts renal failure many years later? The answer, kidney size. After tracking all of those individual cysts, doing fancy MRI pulse sequences, dozens of biochemical parameters and markers for hundreds of patients, the answer is kidney size. Larger kidney size, referred to as total kidney volume, is predictive of renal failure years later. And total kidney volume by MRI was pretty much the only biomarker found in the CRISP study. Dr. Bay measured kidney size precisely, 
a series of thin axial images through the entire kidney. Contour the kidney on every image, find the exact renal volume by adding up all of the areas on each of the slices. That's a summary of the research and basis for helping these patients. After total kidney volume on MRI was discovered to predict future renal failure, other researchers cleaned up the details. The kidney in PCKD has an irregular contour, but researchers at Mayo Clinic found out that Dr. Tai Bay's methods could be simplified. Once they knew the total kidney volume was the target parameter, they found very accurate ways to estimate the kidney volumes by measuring only the maximum long-axis length of the kidney on both the coronal and sagittal images. They also measure the two maximal diameters on the axial images. No need anymore to contour the entire kidney. Just go directly to the Mayo Clinic website, punch in the renal diameters and lengths, and an accurate total kidney volume is calculated. MRI is best, but of course, there are lots of other ways to measure kidney size. MRI is also very expensive in the United States and can be hard to schedule. What about a low-dose CT with volume acquisition? But non-contrast CT is needed because these patients have at least moderate renal failure. Purpose. Determine if non-contrast CT can be used to measure total kidney volume instead of MRI. In particular, the authors wanted to validate very low radiation dose CT. Methods. Non-contrast low-dose CT is noisy and the boundaries of the kidney are not clear. These patients have little body fat due to renal failure, so the organ boundaries are poorly seen on CT. All patients had an MRI, a standard dose CT, and a low-dose CT. Results. For CT, the authors used the simplified Mayo Clinic equations for renal size. They used Dr. Bay's method of full renal contour only on the MRI. The MRI required 30 minutes for total kidney volume per patient. The Mayo Clinic shortcut took about five minutes per patient. The good news, the lowest radiation dose was only about 1.4 millisieverts. The images on CT, even at this low dose, agreed precisely with the Dr. Bay method on MRI. Conclusions. Number one, adult polycystic kidney disease occurs about 1 in 500 to 1,000 individuals in the United States. About 5% of all kidney dialysis patients have PCKD. Number two, there is a treatment, tolvaptin, that delays the need for dialysis for three years or more, but the medication is expensive and can damage the liver and has other side effects. Only patients at high risk for renal failure are treated with this drug. Number three, the main method to determine which patients are at high risk for renal failure was developed by Dr. Tai Bay, a radiologist at the University of Pittsburgh and the CRISP study investigators. The most important parameter is total kidney volume. Number four, it should now be acceptable for insurance companies and nephrologists to accept low radiation dose CT instead of MRI to measure kidney size. The method is to enter renal lengths and diameters into the Mayo Clinic online calculator. Congratulations to Dr. Bay for helping to improve the lives of thousands of patients with polycystic kidney disease around the world. I was doing some literature research last week prior to the large international MRI meeting, the International Society of Magnetic Resonance for Medicine. The meeting was in Montreal, Canada this year. It attracts about 5,000 physicists and engineers who are working on next-generation MRI technology. 
There are also about 1,000 physicians who attend, definitely a meeting where medical topics are secondary to MRI physics. The meeting is sort of a candy shop for radiologists doing MRI to see the next set of interesting tools. The physics researchers working on MRI both appreciate and need the input of radiologists to make sure their efforts are clinically relevant. At the meeting, I prepare to talk about priorities for cardiovascular MRI in the future. 90% of heart disease is due to coronary artery disease, but MRI is now critical to the diagnosis of heart disease of the muscle itself, called non-ischemic heart disease. An example would be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. However, in terms of the numbers of patients, there are two other large patient populations. One is metabolic heart disease. This is due to diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and obesity. Metabolic heart disease is estimated to affect about 40% of adults in the United States. Deposition of fat in the heart is not normal. The effect results in dysfunction and thickening of the heart muscle. But the other growing element of cardiovascular treatment is congenital heart disease. The treatment for congenital heart disease has greatly advanced. There are 1 million children living in the U.S. with congenital heart disease. But the new element, children who now survive to adulthood, an estimated 1.4 million adults with congenital heart disease in the U.S. In radiology, the likelihood that we will encounter these patients as adults has greatly increased. The short title of this current article is MRI Evaluation of Lymphatic Abnormalities After Fontan Surgery, Relationship to Outcome. The authors are from one of the best children's hospitals in the world, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, known as CHOP, and from the University of Pennsylvania. The first author, Dr. David Biko. The senior author is Dr. Yoav Dori. So congenital heart disease is a bit on the complicated side if you don't do this every day. The radiologist has to understand the clinical question, and the clinical question is often just one or two parameters that make a difference. What's the volume of the right ventricle? What are the sizes of the pulmonary arteries and so on? If you forget all the names of the surgery procedures, you just look them up. My section head in MRI was quite brilliant. Just before I became an attending, I did a daily brief review of the tough cases with him. One day, there was a complex congenital heart disease case I needed to ask about. Without hesitation, this brilliant radiologist was not going to wing it. He pulled a book from his shelf about congenital heart disease and told me, for these congenital cases, just look it up, get the anatomy terms right. So that's what I do, only now it's faster. In two seconds, you can find a nice description of the Fontan procedure on Google. The Fontan is done for patients with a single functional ventricle. One example is hypoplastic left heart syndrome. One big chamber doing double duty to pump blood to both the aorta and the pulmonary arteries at the same time. The Fontan procedure takes blood from both the superior and inferior vena cava and directs that blood directly into the pulmonary arteries. No right ventricle is involved. If the patient has increased pulmonary pressures, the Fontan will not work. The high pulmonary pressures will not allow central venous blood to enter the lungs. The central veins get backed up with excess blood. But this article is not about the Fontan procedure exactly. It's about assessing some new MRI features before the Fontan procedure is completed. We cannot measure pressure with MRI, but we can measure the effect of increased pressure in the pulmonary arteries. If the pressures are too high in the pulmonary arteries, that pressure goes back to the central pulmonary veins, the inferior and superior vena cava, 
If those pressures are high, then an additional complication is lymphatic drainage is also disrupted. Remember the thoracic duct on the left side drains directly into the left brachiocephalic vein. The thoracic duct on the left is larger, but there is also a right thoracic duct. So if central venous pressure increases, lymphatic drainage will decrease. The lymphatic vessels become massively distended in the upper chest and lower neck. On MRI of the chest, we hardly ever visualize the normal lymphatics in the thoracic duct. But the research group in this paper did some clever MRI evaluation and determined that these lymphatics are very easy to see in some of these patients with congenital heart disease. And the more distended the lymphatics become, the worse the outcome after Fontan surgery. Purpose. Determine the relationship between distended lymphatics on MRI in relationship to surgery for congenital heart disease. Methods. The MRI was interesting, my favorite category of MRI that is unambiguous and easy to perform. The authors used a widely available pulse sequence that's T2-weighted. The sequence is called SPACE by one vendor or CUBE and VISTA by other vendors. It is a 3D sequence that is a very long echo train length. That means the sequence is fairly fast, about five minutes to cover the whole chest with high spatial resolution about one millimeter 3D isotropic resolution. The same sequence can be used for nice T2-weighted images in the knee, abdomen, or with flare images in the brain. The authors evaluated 83 patients. These patients had a single ventricle physiology. They had stage one repair of the Fontan procedure. That is, the first step is to disconnect the superior vena cava from the heart and instead connect the SVC directly to the pulmonary arteries. Then let the patient recover to see if the patient physiology can adjust. The MRI was done after this first step of surgery for the patient. The next step, disconnect the inferior vena cava from the heart and also hook it directly to the pulmonary arteries. But at the first step, the SVC connected directly to the pulmonary arteries. The central venous pressure might increase. If the central venous pressure increases, there will be distended lymphatics in the upper chest. The authors graded how much lymphatic high signal was seen on the T2-weighted coronal images. The extent of lymphatic abnormality was then correlated with the patient's clinical course after the full Fontan surgery. In some cases, even this first step of surgery could go so wrong that it needed to be reversed or a heart transplant was needed. Results. The worst degree of T2 signal that was observed was markedly distended lymphatics in both the mediastinum and the lung parenchyma. This was called type 4 T2 signal. The worst case type 4 T2 signal was associated with all complications, including failure of the Fontan procedure, the need for cardiac transplant, patient death, even longer hospitalization after surgery, 29 days versus the normal 9 days. Summary. Number 1. 2.4 million individuals in the U.S. with congenital heart disease, more adults than children, 1.4 million versus 1 million. Number two, the initial MRI for these patients is very complicated to figure out the type of cardiac abnormality, but those complex cases are mostly done at specialized hospitals. After that, the clinical questions are relatively straightforward. What is the size of the right or left ventricle? How large are the pulmonary arteries? And so on. Number three, Failures of stage 1 Fontan surgery can be associated with abnormally high pulmonary pressures. In patients with single ventricles, the plan is to disconnect the IVC and the SVC from the right heart. 
the superior and inferior vena cava are instead plugged directly into the pulmonary arteries, bypassing the heart. Number four, high pulmonary pressures result in high central venous pressures. The lymphatics drain into the central pulmonary veins, so the lymphatic drainage is impeded. These distended lymphatics are easily seen on coronal MRI using the SPACE T2-weighted MRI sequence. On other vendors, this is known as CUBE or VISTA. Complications of lymphatic failure include chylus effusions, plastic bronchitis, and protein-losing enteropathy. Figures in this paper show T2 signal changes that are easy to identify and diagnose. The MRI findings of distended lymphatics indicate a very poor prognosis for patients with correction for congenital heart disease. The next topic is about big data, analysis of radiologist performance, and what will be coming soon to a hospital near you. The short title is Variation in Follow-up Imaging Recommendations in Radiology Reports. The first author is Dr. Laila Kochan. The senior author is Dr. Raman Khorasani. The report is from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Variable recommendations for follow-up by radiologists reading CT, MRI, or X-ray has been reported to range from about 10 to 40 percent. It depends on the radiologist who interprets the scan. One might think, if a nodule is present on the CT and Fleischner guidelines are followed, then most radiologists would have the same recommendation. But there are dozens of other imaging findings that do not have clear guidelines. If the aortic diameter is 3.5 centimeters, should the patient have follow-up? Perhaps if they are age 30, but what if the patient is age 80? To understand radiologist variation, one has to analyze massive numbers of radiology reports. Now we have big data. Access to the electronic health record can help. New approaches in machine learning allow computers to automatically read our reports and search for follow-up recommendations. In this study, the authors first developed a method using natural language processing. The research group first had human analysis of 1,000 randomly chosen reports. The humans classified the report as recommending a follow-up or not. Then the researchers trained a computer to read the reports based on the 1,000 manually identified reports. Interpretation of language and words by computers started in the 1950s. In 1950, Alan Turing proposed the Turing test to determine when a computer developed true intelligence. The 2014 movie called The Imitation Game is based on Alan Turing's work in cracking the German Enigma code during World War II. In this case, Turing developed a computer machine to crack the German war codes, but Turing also wanted to understand artificial intelligence. When do we say a machine has human-level intelligence? His answer, if human evaluators cannot tell who is responding, a computer or a human. He explained this by a game that people played at parties in the 1950s called the imitation game. In this game, a man and a woman go into separate rooms. Guests try to tell which is the man and which is the woman by asking a series of questions. The man gives answers on paper that he thinks the woman would give. The woman does the opposite. Turing changed the game by replacing the man in one of the rooms with a computer and continuing to play the game. Then the woman and the computer would give answers to the questions. The computer tries to pretend it's the woman. The woman imitates the man. Purpose. Determine factors that account for variation between radiologists for recommendation of follow-up imaging. Methods. 
the authors used more than 300,000 radiology reports from their EPIC electronic healthcare system. 65 radiologists interpreted those reports. About 50% of the reports were generated with a resident. The authors had the age, training, and gender of the radiologists. The electronic health record provided information about patient demographics and other factors. Results. About 12% of all the reports had a recommendation for follow-up. To contradict prior research on the topic, more experienced radiologists had the same amount of follow-up recommendations as junior radiologists. Also, male or female radiologists did not matter. The main factor responsible for variation on the reports simply a matter of the individual radiologist who did the report. Different specialty areas also had different follow-up rates for recommendations. But after accounting for radiology specialty, individual rates of follow-up recommendation differed up to sevenfold. Conclusion. For AI, the first thing we think of is a computer interpreting the CT or MRI scan. That might happen, but comprehensive image analysis will not really be fully deployed for a long time. There are far easier AI tasks. Management of the healthcare workforce is one of those. If you run a department and one radiologist is recommending seven times more imaging follow-up than the rest of the group, that might be cause for concern. Unnecessary testing causes excess cost and potential harm to the patient. As a radiologist, I have no idea if I recommend follow-up tests more or less often than other attending radiologists in my department. My guess, each of us thinks we are about average, just about the right number of follow-up recommendations. Until we have the data, we have no idea. This type of healthcare data mining is already available in other parts of the hospital. The general internist is monitored. Do they check your cholesterol and blood pressure at your annual physical exam? It seems likely that these types of report cards will be available for radiologists using machine learning tools to read our reports. Identification of soft tissue masses can frequently be a problem. Are they benign or malignant? Do they need follow-up? Are MRI features sufficient to tell us if the pathology is benign? Soft tissue tumors are common in adults and they lead to mistakes. The title of this research article is Soft Tissue Sarcomas, Assessment of MRI Features Correlating with Histologic Grade and Patient Outcome. The authors are from Bordeaux, France at the Regional Comprehensive Cancer Center. The first author is Dr. Amandine Cambé. The senior author is Dr. Michelle Kind. The most common mistake I saw doing MRI of MSK tumors was a radiologist or surgeon who decided that a well-defined mass with low signal on T1 and high signal on T2 is benign. No gadolinium was used, perhaps an incidental lesion. The tumor gets referred to an orthopedic surgeon who finds a small movable mass, but without gadolinium, an orthosurgeon could easily assume the mass is a cyst. Rather than doing an oncologic resection procedure with appropriate margins, the surgeon mistakenly believes he or she is dealing with a synovial or ganglion cyst. In adults, myxoid sarcomas, synovial sarcomas, and undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma can all appear cystic on T2 images, but if GAD is given, the mass is clearly solid. Synovial sarcomas can be near the joints. The features associated with synovial sarcoma that may lead to an, an initial mistaken diagnosis of a benign lesion are slow growth, average time to diagnosis two to four years, and small size, perhaps less than five centimeters at initial presentation. Synovial sarcomas may have well-defined margins and may be homogeneous in appearance on CT and MRI. 
but synovial sarcoma is an intermediate to high-grade soft tissue lesion. Of course, not all synovial sarcomas are so difficult. Dr. Mark Murphy at the AFIP would teach the triple sign of synovial sarcoma, mixed areas of three types of T2 signal, low, intermediate, and high signal intensity all in the same lesion. The triple sign occurs in up to 50% of synovial sarcomas, but it also appears in other heterogeneous sarcomas. Instead of using MRI to determine the histologic diagnosis, it's always made more sense to me to determine what to biopsy and what to leave alone. Assuming the tumor needs to be biopsied, either the lesion undergoes core biopsy, often by radiology, or complete excisional biopsy by the surgeon. Purpose. Determine which MRI features are associated with high-grade soft tissue sarcoma. The authors also looked at the relationship between MRI features and patient survival. The relevance to the radiologist. First, what portion of the tumor needs to be biopsied? If a 14-gauge needle is used, the tissue fragment is only 1 or 2 millimeters in size. The lesions can be large, and the radiologist may need to avoid biopsy of necrotic portions. There is also a good possibility of missing the most aggressive portion of the tumor using a core biopsy. If certain MRI features are correlated with high-grade histology, the MRI features could directly be used as a double check of the results of the pathology core. Methods. This study was a seven-year review of soft tissue sarcomas at a single center. The authors excluded some of the obvious tumor types, such as angiosarcoma and well-differentiated liposarcoma. Overall, they evaluated 130 tumors in adults. The average patient age was 60 years. About half the patients were women and half men. Two radiologists did a double-blinded review of the MRI and recorded many different MRI characteristics that were present on T1, T2, and gadolinium MR images. These MRI features were then compared to histology. Results. The worst histologic grade is grade 3. Grades 1 and 2 tumors are better defined and patient survival is longer. About half the tumors in the series were grade 3, half grades 1 and 2. The goal of the analysis was to find MRI features that might indicate a grade 3 tumor. Of about 15 MRI features, only three were associated with grade 3 aggressive soft tissue lesions. Number one, peritumoral enhancement after gadolinium. Number two, an area of the tumor that showed no enhancement after GAD indicating necrosis. Number three, extensive heterogeneity on T2 images. Extensive heterogeneity meant more than 50% of the mass was non-uniform, very irregular signal. If at least two of these three features were present, the likelihood of having recurrent or metastatic disease within five years was four times worse than if those features were not present. And even if the pathologist graded the tumor as a less aggressive tumor, that is, grades one or two, the tumor still behaved the same as the most aggressive grade three tumors. The survival was poor and the tumors had frequent metastases. For the radiologists, a full 40% of core biopsies resulted in underestimation of the final pathologic tumor grade. That was not the fault of the radiologist. The core biopsy sees only a fragment of the entire tumor. If two of these three MRI features were present, about two-thirds of the core biopsy grades would be corrected to indicate a higher tumor grade. Conclusion. Soft tissue malignancies are dangerous for the patient as well as for the clinicians. The useful information in the study is that, for sarcomas, 
three MRI features were associated with high tumor grade and more aggressive tumor behavior, even if the pathologist graded the tumor as less aggressive. The key MRI features are, number one, peritumoral enhancement after gadolinium. Number two, an area of tumor that showed no enhancement after GAD indicating necrosis. Number three, extensive heterogeneity on T2 images. Extensive heterogeneity meant more than 50% of the mass was non-uniform, irregular signal. These results should be useful information for the practicing radiologist. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke, editor for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.